John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. It would take roughly 15 years from the time David was anointed by Samuel to the time he actually became the king of Israel. During this time, he would face all kinds of situations that you and I could not even imagine facing. Most of this time would be spent in the desert being trained by God to rely on him, to trust him, to actually become a proper God-fearing, God-loving, God-worshiping king. From the time David was a small shepherd boy, he demonstrated over and over how he was a man after God's own heart. His life is a great example for us today to apply the difficulties that he faced and how he continued to turn to God for forgiveness, mercy, and grace. If we were to write the Bible, we would probably not tell the world both present and future about our failings where God was concerned, and that would be a great disservice. As far as what he faced, one could literally compare his life to that of Christ. The exception, of course, is that whole sin thing. When we compare David's action with our own under similar situations, how do we fare or stack up? Were we just as forgiving, patient, kind, and willing to follow God's instructions? Or did we do our own thing? Keep that in mind as we pick back up with 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 and 2. Now, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. Last week, we ended with David and his men well, they were in the process of being surrounded by Saul and his men on a mountain in the wilderness of Maon. Things may have been looking a little bleak, but at the last moment, God performs a miracle and sends a messenger to Saul who tells him, come quick, the Philistines were raiding the land. He has to break off the pursuit and deal with the situation. Now, we are told that as soon as this situation was taken care of, Saul once again begins to pursue David. Now, if I may make a comparison here for a moment, Saul is like a persistent problem or issue in life. We all have our own Sauls that we deal with on a regular basis. Let me use my future daughter-in-law, Jaylene, as an example of a worst case scenario. She has been dealing with brain cancer for as long as we have known her. She had surgery and the doctors removed it. Just like David in this situation, he experienced a relief from being pursued by the trouble. Jaylene became pregnant and at the proper time delivered Amy and I a grandson. A short time later, she began to experience headaches again and other troubling signs. When she went back to the doctor's office, she found out that the tumor was back and with a vengeance. Surgery was no longer an option. When she started to lose function, on her left side of her body, doctors went with experimental drugs and a targeted chemotherapy. And lo and behold, the tumor began to shrink. The blood supply that fed it decreased dramatically and things began to look up once again. The relief came with a heavy sigh. Ah, thank God it's all taken care of and it's over. 
Just recently, the gains that she was making, get her, getting her strength back in the left side of her body, they quickly disappeared. Upon further investigation, the cancer moved below the old tumor, and a new one has grown in its place. Like I said and stated, we each have our own souls that pursue us. It may not be something as drastic as cancer. It could be finances. It could be an addiction problem, personality disorders, something posted on social media. It could be anything that causes you major stress in your life that continues to haunt you. When we turn to God, he brings relief from being pursued. But you know, Satan wants to pursue each and every one of us with a vengeance. Each and every time we have relief from being pursued, we turn around and there it is again, trying to chase us down. When we, are, when we are in trouble, do we think that God has failed us? I hope not, because he will never fail us. That's what it tells us in Hebrews 13, verse five. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. Just like Jaylene's cancer, Satan comes at you each time with a vengeance. Saul has returned to chase David and his men with 3,000 of his own in the wilderness of Engedi. The area David and his men fled to is located along the western edge of the Dead Sea, and it's approximately 1,300 feet below sea level, deep in the Judean wilderness, and is surrounded by a bleak moonscape with less than four inches of rain a year and temperatures well above 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer months. There's nothing else quite like it. One visitor from Scotland back at the turn of the 20th century arrived there on horseback and was so overwhelmed that he described it this way. He who has been to Engedi fears lest he exaggerate his fertility to those who have not. The oasis burst upon him from one of the driest and most poisonous regions of our planet. Either he has ridden across the wilderness of Judea seven hours without a spring, three with hardly a bush, when suddenly over the edge of a precipice, 400 feet below him, he sees a river of vegetation burst from the rock. Or he has come along the coast along the sulfur smells with the bitter sea on one side, the desert cliffs on the other, and the fiery sun overhead. When round a uh, corner of the cliffs, he sees a broad fan of vegetation open and slope before him. The water, strange and sudden, with the exhilaration of the view across the sea, produces most generous impressions of this oasis and tempt to exaggerate its fertility. The most enthusiastic, however, could not too highly rate its as, uh, usefulness as a refuge, for it lies at the back of a broad desert and is large enough to sustain an army. Psalm 38, verse 12. Those who seek my life lay snares for me, and those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction, and they devise treachery all day long. Now David is here high enough that he can see anyone approaching for miles and miles. 3,000 men would create a dust cloud and could easily be detected. Now, David may have sent men to spy out what was coming, only to find Saul chasing him once again. As the army approaches, David has to be thinking that maybe someone has betrayed his location because they're coming right for him. 
David and all his men hide in the back of a cave. 1 Samuel 24, verse 3. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. There are 3,000 men outside this cave entrance and lo and behold, Saul comes in to do a number two. Nobody is going to go in with him. He is the king and should have a little privacy. No one would expect to find people or animals inside that cave. Besides, if Saul needed help, he could just call out. Caves, if deep enough, are dark, of course, but anyone coming in out of bright sunlight, they cannot see into the darkness and anyone outside cannot see very deep into the cave itself. The 3,000 men, along with the horses, donkeys, or whatever, will be making a lot of noise, and this may have been echoing inside the cave a bit, which might explain why Saul did not hear David's men whispering in 1 Samuel 24, verse 4. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. The men with David could not believe their luck. Here is the one person who has been chasing them, preventing them from leading a peaceful life, all by himself in a spot where no one could come in time to save him. They told David, this has got to be a God thing. Go and kill him so that we can all have peace and you can finally become king. Now David set out to kill Saul. But God changed his heart before he could. David faced temptation. God promised him all his enemies. Psalm 21, verses 8 through 10. You will capture all your enemies. Your strong right hand will seize all who hate you. You will throw them into a flaming furnace when you appear. The Lord will consume them in his anger. Fire will devour them. You will wipe their children from the face of the earth. They will never have descendants. God promised him the throne. Psalm 132, verse 11. The Lord swore an oath to David with a promise. He will never take back. I will place one of your descendants on your throne. The question here for him is the same as it is for us today. Are we going to receive God's promises or win it through disobedience? God was the one who told Samuel to anoint Saul. And it would have to be God who removed him. David could not fulfill God's promise through his own disobedience. Sometimes when we have a promise from God, we think we are justified in sinning to pursue that promise, believing that somehow our sin can further the promise of God. It's always wrong to do that. When we do do that, is that promise ever a blessing? Or is it just something we capture or force God to give us by helping God out. Believing that uh, it's wrong to do that, let's look at an example uh, of this. Jesus made this promise, John 10, 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That is something we all want, a long and abundant life. And in Psalm 16, verse four, in your presence is fullness of joy. Your right hand, there are pleasures forever. That's something that we all still desire. 
Now, those are promises to us. So now, what if a husband looks at these promises and leaves his wife for another because after all, he just can't have an abundant life that is full of joy and pleasure being married to his wife. He needs to leave her and find another in order to fulfill God's promise. Does this sound right to you? I certainly hope not. We can't pursue the promises of God that he gives us through sin. God will fulfill his promises, his way and righteously. Abraham would be a perfect example of this. He was promised by God that his seed would be great and through a son that his wife would bear. Yet God tells him to go and sacrifice his one and only son. He had a choice. Do I obey you or do I protect the promise? What did he do? He went to sacrifice his one and only son, believing that God would still fulfill the promise. He obeyed God and let God worry about how he would fulfill his promise that he made. God does not need our help with his promises. Instead, we need to be obedient and let him deal with what he promises. Let's use David as an example once again in this situation. David knew how to honor God. That is called waiting on the Lord. What he was demonstrating here in this situation was the patience to wait for the Lord. There is a difference, you know. We know how to wait on the Lord, don't we? We are here right now praying and praising and worshiping him, giving him the honor and the glory that's due. But how many of us will leave here and go out the doors only to do our own thing, trying to help God alone? David is an example of what we need to do. Wait on him and be patient, waiting for him to do what he does best. God is really better at doing God than we are. 1 Samuel 24, verses 5 and 6. It came afterward, about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. That robe was a symbol of Saul's authority. And his heart was soft and tender. And he knew that he had Saul dead to rights. He should have done nothing, especially since Saul was in a vulnerable spot. Compare the two men for a moment and look at their actions. What has Saul done to David? He took away his wives. He took away his home. He took away his job. And he has done nothing but to try and kill David. Now, what has David done to Saul? He cut a piece of his robe off and he feels convicted about it, about what he's done to Saul. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 20. Furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king and in your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound and the winged creature will make the matter known. Now, isn't this what kind of gets us into a lot of trouble a lot? Somebody sins against us and we feel justified in sinning against them, getting even with them only to repent for what you have done when they repent for what they have done to you. Isn't this just a crazy attitude to have? This is not what David does at all. He knows what all Saul has done to him, 
but he also knows that Saul is not quite all there upstairs. David understands that eventually he is going to have to answer to God for all his actions. Romans 14, verse 12. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. 1 Samuel 24, verse 7. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose and left the cave and went on his way. When David returned to his men, he gave them an explanation as to the reasons why he did not lift a finger against Saul. He could have easily have said, I can't, but you can. He does it, though, for the same reason he can't kill Saul. They can't. It's not their place to help God. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, but uh, but does and does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth and bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things things and endures all things. David shows what it means to love like God loves. The men with him understand and won't go against his word, even though that means they will have to still be outlaws on the run. This is real integrity. 1 Samuel 24, verse 8. Now afterward, David arose and went out to the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. Out of all of David's actions recently that have disturbed his men, this one had to scare the living daylights out of them. Saul had just finished his business and leaves to join the 3,000 men that were waiting for him. And David, without without giving warning to his men, follows him out of the cave and calls out to him and falls face down on the ground. A moment of sheer terror had to come over them. The exact opposite had to come over the 3,000 men outside. Here's the guy that we've been looking for, and he comes out and he just prostrates himself in front of everyone. Probably a good thing that Saul did not have his spear available. 1 Samuel 24, verse 9. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you. David addresses Saul as if all the actions he has taken up to this point was not his idea, almost as if he's been given really bad counsel. He's providing Saul with an excuse for him to save face. There was no one around when he tried to kill David those two times with the spear. No one told him to go to Naoth and Ramah, where he ended up stripped naked and prophesying. David is trying to give Saul the easy way out here. 1 Samuel 24, verses 10 and 11. Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand, For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, 
No one perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands. And I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. See, Saul has been living a lie. He has lived day and night believing that David is out to hunt him down and kill him. He has created this illusion in his own mind. When David holds out the piece of the robe for all to see, all of Saul's delusions are shattered in one fell swoop. He can no longer believe the things he wanted in order to justify killing David. You see, if David was out to kill him, then why didn't he? When, he, when we face people in this world who are living a lie about us, when we are confront them with hard empirical evidence and truth, which shatters their lie and belief, are we treated better? No, usually not. Most of the time, those people double down or find some other excuse to continue to go after us. David also told Saul in everyone's presence, you're God's problem, not mine. God is going to have to remove you from the throne. I will not lay a hand on you. Psalm 19, verse 13. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I will be acquitted of great transgression. I think David has passed the temptation in grand Christ-like fashion here, which sets a great example for us when we deal with those Saul's in our lives. He felt bad about cutting off the corner of the road, which could have represented contempt for Saul's authority. He spared his life when he had received some bad counsel from his own man. 1 Samuel 24, verses 12 through 15. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness but my hand shall not be against you. After whom is the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my case and deliver me from your hand. Now David is really trusting in God in all this. He is trusting that God will intercede on his behalf. When he stepped out of that cave, he could have easily been killed on the spot by either one of the 3,000 men or Saul himself. I have to think that they were so surprised at, at, uh, at David's actions, it took them back a little bit. Matthew 7, 6, uh, 7 uh, verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? David demonstrated that his words were truth. He is showing everybody that what he is saying and, and telling Saul is the truth. Saul, it was a sitting duck, no pun intended. What about our lives? Are our actions that of Christ or of something else? In all those situations that we face, when we truly show Christ and rely on God to intercede for us and protect us, the anxiety we face just seems to dissipate. Reflecting Christ seems to put us in a good mood, even if the other person or people continue to attack, lie, or take advantage of us. God has been interceding and protecting David for a very long time, and David is showing everyone the love he has for God in his actions. 1 Samuel 24, verses 16 through 19. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? 
Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. This is the same attitude and remorse that Saul has shown in the past. Remember, he told Jonathan that David would not be killed, and yet he has chased him down to do just that over and over and over. David's talk to Saul is a perfect example for Romans 12, verses 19 through 21. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, Saul may not have been hungry or thirsty. Well, physically anyways, because he was definitely God-starved. But the sparing of his life would have been like heaping those coals on his head for the evil that he has been trying to do to David. 1 Samuel 24, verses 20 through 22. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul and Saul went to his home and but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the first time that Saul has openly admitted that he knows David will be the next king. And he knows full well what happens to an old regime that is replaced. All of the former's family is killed off. We talked about that when Jonathan made the covenant with David before he had to flee. David swears to Saul that he will not kill off his family. But what I find interesting here, though, is the last sentence in verse 23. Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. David knew that even if Saul meant all of this at this moment, it would take time for it to play out and actually show that he had really had a change of heart. David did not go back to the place, but stayed in the wilderness. He must have been applying the saying that we have today. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. David will not be fooled again. When we get ready to leave out of here today, I want us to remember, I want us to think about our actions with others. I want us to think about, are we waiting on God? Are we worshiping and praising him and giving them honor and everything that's due? And are we waiting for God to fulfill the promises that he's given? Are we praying to God to deal with the things and situations that we're in? And are we waiting for God to deal with it the way God does in God's way? Or are we trying to help God out? Are we trying to take matters into our own hands? I really humbly ask you, when you get out 
of service today and you're out in the world, remember, be like David. Turn everything over to God and let God deal with you. Have the patience. And if you don't have patience, please pray to God to give you the patience, to give you the wisdom, to give you the understanding to wait on Him. It's the only thing that keeps us from making rash decisions and getting ourselves into trouble.